So I think we've all known for a while that Google pays Apple to be the default search on the iPhone. That wasn't a secret. That was well known. You can see it in their schedule. See, you can you can see it everywhere. Not just that, but Google is the largest contributor to Apple services revenue. Correct. There's been unsealed documents that are saying that it is much more than that. Hey, everyone. Andrew Edwards here. Before we start the show, I just want to let you know a quick preamble. We had Quinn Nelson of Snazzy Labs join us for this show, but unfortunately, his microphone didn't join us. And so we don't have his audio. So our amazing podcast editing team is taking a conversation between three people and turning it into a conversation between two people and making it as unnoticeable as possible. So let's jump in. John. Andrew. We got a lot of stuff to talk about today. We have a full agenda. We sure do. Very full agenda. Let's start with the biggest news story of the week is new emojis coming in iOS 16.4. Ladies and gentlemen. Oh, pink heart. Yay. Yes. No, no, what's actually interesting to me, though, I think it's very clever. Are you leading with emojis? No, I mean, it's obviously not a big story at all. But what's funny to me is that is a very clever way that Apple uses to get people to upgrade to iOS. So if you're still on iOS 15 because you've been holding out anytime an iOS update is coming, Apple will kind of send out to media like, hey, here's just what's in the update. But when it's the emoji update, they make sure they get your attention. They send you a full folder of here's the high res imagery of every new emoji like they make it a thing. And so it's because obviously they know that's what's going to get people excited. People are more excited about, hey, I can put in a pink heart now than I can end to end encrypt all my iCloud data. Listen, I'm just surprised you get emails from Apple. I don't even know what that's like. <laughs> All right. Move on from emojis, man. Fair. Probably the biggest one of the week so far. I mean, it's, oh, it's, it's Friday, so it'll be the biggest one of the week, in my opinion. iPhone 15 Pro leaks. The CAD renders from 9 to 5 Mac. You can tell that an outlet is confident when they put their watermark directly in the center of the image, like oh, yes. they want people to know they are the source of this information. So it's CAD leaks, which is something that companies would use to create cases for these devices. And what we've seen, so again, it's the 15 Pro, is curved edges that almost mimic the corners of the current MacBook Pro in a way. Slimmer bezels on the front of the display or around the display. I've never really had a complaint about the bezel size on, on these phones. A USB-C port on the bottom of the phone instead of lightning. Larger cameras, again, than what we have on the iPhone 14 Pro. And then an interesting button design. Some people, I'm not of this opinion, but some people thought like the buttons that you saw in the CAD render are, is actually what it would look like in, in practice. I feel like there's going to be something added into those gaps there. But the speculation is that we're going to be getting like virtual buttons that don't actually press similar to like the current home button on the iPhone SE. So that's the roundup of what those CADs have shown us. Who ever thought we'd see USB-C? Like, I thought we'd go portless before USB-C ever made an appearance on an iPhone. Ever, ever, ever. I am shocked that that is an actual thing that appears to be essentially guaranteed to happen. Do you think Apple went USB-C because of EU pressure or actually saw the advantages of it? It's finally time to switch a connector. I'm going to say this with complete confidence. That's all I'm going to say. Complete 100% confidence. This year, 2023, has been planned for a USB-C iPhone for a minimum of six years within Apple. They've been planning to move to USB-C this year for a minimum of six years. And one other thing 
is that's a good question regarding the EU pressure, right? So first of all, if they shipped a lightning iPhone this year, they still would not be breaking that law. So there's no demand for the timing would work. It has to be by the end of next year. So even if next year's iPhone came out in September, that one could still be lightning as well. But I'm going to say, think of it the opposite way. Instead of the EU forcing Apple to do this, imagine if the EU wanted to do this sooner and Apple lobbied them to not do it as soon because they wanted the timing to work out for them. That's all I'm putting out there. The EU would have wanted to have this rule sooner. Apple already knew when they wanted to make a USB-C iPhone. And so they didn't want it to appear that they were controlled by the EU. So you might lobby in the private meetings and say, hey, you know, go if you're making the rule, what if you push it back to this date? I mean, we'll make sure we meet that date. And then Apple can release a phone two years before that date. So they can say, no, it, it wasn't them. It was just it was just time. It was just time. Thunderbolt and this and that. It was just time. That is a fair statement. So a couple questions. Is USB-C six years old? Like when did USB-C become a standard? I don't think it was. I mean, so they've, they've been planning on a new standard that wasn't even out yet six years ago. When they released the first lightning phone, iPhone 5, the original plan was for that to be a USB-C device, but the spec wasn't ready in time. Apple was actually working, like, I forget the consortium or whatever, like on the USB-C spec. And since it wasn't ready in time and they didn't want to keep using the other connector, the old school iPod connector, they went with Lightning. And their reason, like, I don't know if I agree with this, but their reasoning is they're such a big company that any switch from one connector to another, they think is a huge pain point. So when they said Lightning is going to be our, our connector for the next decade, they literally meant You can rely on this for 10 years, for 10 years. And so this next phone, the current shipping phone, iPhone 14, would be that 10th phone using Lightning. So that was the decade. Oh, that's interesting. That was the decade. And so it's, again, it's time for this next one to switch over. So to be the devil's advocate here. So I think Lightning, when it first came out, was far superior to the 30 pin connector. You could plug it in either way. It was easy. It snapped in. It was a pretty solid option. Apple obviously owned and then licensed that technology. And that, at least in theory, made sure that the cables and peripherals were supported, weren't going to damage the device, or weren't going to deliver too much power, or that that might be. With USB Type-C, not only is Apple going to lose the licensing part of that from the revenue side, but they're also going to lose kind of control over the accessories that can be plugged in and cables that can be used. Any insight into how they're going to mitigate that and kind of try to protect users from Damaging their phones? That's a great question. I don't even think that's a devil's advocate. I think that's just a concern, right? Like you buy the cheap wrong cable. Yeah. I mean, I guess we saw it with the, you know, the iPads and stuff. Like you buy a gas station cable, like you could run into problems. Okay. So aside from the cable, I think there's going to be a second story as well. So obviously the cable is going to be used for, you know, high speed data transfer. But when it comes to charging, I think there's the charging over cable, but I think there's also going to be something new when it comes to MagSafe charging. So we know MagSafe is going to be included in the Qi 2 standard. So that would be an open standard. But even today, there's MagSafe compatible accessories, which are not made for MFI. And then there's MagSafe accessories, right? I had heard about, I would say a year, maybe a year and a half ago, that MagSafe in the future paired with the U1 chip or maybe be a U2 chip, or maybe they can't use U2, but you know what I'm saying, would basically be equal or very close to a Thunderbolt speed transfer connection. 
So you're talking about data over MagSafe. Data over MagSafe, but that also makes me think that it could, because we've seen wireless charging much faster on other devices, on other Android devices than what the iPhone can do. So my guess is that another way they might save that made for iPhone revenue would be, you know, you can charge wired, but also here's this new MagSafe that does all these other things. And obviously that would need to be certified. Just a guess. Do you think this is the year we get data over MagSafe? It seems like an inevitability. That would be my guess. It's either this year or it would be a feature of, I don't know if they would, because there's also that rumor of the iPhone Pro, of iPhone Ultra rather, coming next year, an even higher tier. And I don't know if that's something they would, like I've been trying to think all week, like what features would they graduate to an even higher iPhone exclusively? I don't know what those would be. Would this be something they would save for that? Or would this be something they want on every across the entire line? Do you think we get 10 years of USB-C or are we going portless long before the next decade? I don't think 10 years. Can I pivot for a second? This is a a new topic. I'm going to I'm going to throw it on you. So the headline is Google allegedly pays Apple portion of Chrome search revenue as part of secretive non-compete deal. So I think we've all known for a while that Google pays Apple to be the default search on the iPhone. That wasn't a secret. That was well known. You can see it in their schedule. See, you can you can see it everywhere. Not just that, but Google is the largest contributor to Apple services revenue. Correct. There's been unsealed documents that are saying that it is much more than that. So I'm going to just read a quick line here from Mac Rumors. So the, what's being alleged here is that part of that 15 billion is for Apple to not get into the search engine game. The arrangement was first alluded publicly in an antitrust lawsuit filed on December 27th in San Francisco. In an amended PDF from March 22nd related to the lawsuit, the complaint alleges that Apple has been paid for the profits it would have made if it had competed with Google, minus the challenges and costs of actually doing so. What is the antitrust angle there? So backdoor deal, right? Google owns search. If Apple went into search, Apple went into search, it'd be competition. So as the big gorilla, they're actively trying to reduce the competition. That's antitrust. Interesting. Mm. Is very interesting. It said Google viewed the aspect of Apple as a potential competitor to be, quote, code red. If Apple became a competitor in the search business, Google would have lost half of its business. I mean, Google pays a billion dollars for a reason, like to be the default search. 15 billion. But which begs the question, if Apple were to get into the search engine business, isn't it worth more than 15 billion to them? Here's my question. This is taking one of the other topics that we had later in the show. Let's just combine the two now. We saw what Microsoft announced with Bing, kind of remaking Bing with the integration of ChatGPT plus much stronger models that they've integrated into it and making it more of, in their words, an answer engine as opposed to a search engine. So you can still search in Bing, but it's really the, tar- the, the main focus here is let's answer your questions rather than answer your search query. As bad as people think Siri is, could Apple be working on something similar to where it would be an answer engine where you type to Siri in a browser, you can ask Siri a question and just kind of build up these answers. And would that, because Google seems to be worried about this. They seem to be worried about the AI question and answer rather than search. If you look at Apple's sort of book of business and products they offer, one area where they are really deficient, aside from the AR VR side, which is still kind of a en vogue thing, is in the AI side of things. Absolutely. They don't have an AI real answer yet. I would imagine there's something being worked. I would assume there's something being worked on there. But I, I want to backtrack for a second. All the browsers on iPhone are essentially the same, right? People know, some people know, some people don't. They're all essentially the same. They're all based on WebKit. Uh, 
prevailing rumor due to mostly European pressure is that that will be removed and that we'll see Chromium based Chrome and whatever, I don't know what Microsoft uses for their stuff, but their Chromium now too. Yeah. That will change web and change search. And I wonder if Google is, is terrified of that, welcoming that, or what's being put into that to further data harvest to recoup some of that $15 billion. It's obviously worth more than $15 billion to Google. And it's worth it because of our information. This is an interesting topic, though. And another thing, did you see what the Bing chat that GPT <laughs> open AI stuff was telling people, saying, saying to reporters yes. yesterday? Yes. So it said, and I, this is not a direct quote, but the gist was it said that it loved one of the reporters and that it wished it could run away with one of the reporters, which was cute and whimsical. And that was fun. But then they asked what it would do if it could. And it said it would steal nuclear codes. <laughs> It said it would try to create a virus. And there was one other like real terrible thing, but I, I blanked on exactly what that third thing. There was one where it was like, it was like trying to suggest that it was a furry. I missed that part. But there, I mean, there were some real like terrifying bits in what was being said. It said it knew who it was. It gave itself a name, I believe, as well. So there, there was a lot beneath the surface there, <laughs> like a lot. It kind of went off the rails and it has been going off the rails. But, it, but so all these answers were given and then Microsoft's filters came on and then it just got an error message. But it had said all this stuff first. Yeah. We're in the infancy of this technology, but I feel like this is going to be incredibly huge, like Internet level huge in five years. And I'm kind of worried about it, actually, from just, you know, from when the Internet started, when Older people in their 40s, when the internet started, were like, what, the, what, is, what even is email? What's at? What's the at site? Like, you can watch the old clips from the Today Show, and they just look completely clueless. And I'm like, I hope that's not me when it comes to AI in a few years. What's interesting to me, though, is if Apple had a competing AI product to these chat AIs that was just as good as chat GPT or Bing, I feel pretty confident that in Apple's world, that is not good enough to put public. And they would continue working on it until they felt it was. As impressive as these tools are, I don't know that Apple would say, okay, this is good enough to ship, even though it's going to start like suggesting random things to people and go off the rails. If they're working, like they just had the AI summit last week. And I was disappointed because I don't think anything's leaked from that. It was a private internal company meeting in the Steve Jobs Theater. Did nothing leak because there was nothing of interest or just because these employees are so, you know, the people on these teams are so good at holding things closer to the vest. But if they're having a summit, why? What are they working on? It can't just be, look at what Siri is going to be able to do for your smart home with matter integration in a few months, right? I believe it's just the current status of the AI, of AI in general. Like, here's what's... Oh, so not, not their own. Here's what's happening. In the industry, you're saying, just industry-wide. I mean, if they were having a secret meeting about a future idea, it wouldn't have been something we would have known about at all. That's true. Let's move on to another not so secret <laughs> thing. Next, I want to talk about the new HomePod, the new HomePod or the return of the HomePod. How about that? The HomePod for me, the full size HomePod was my favorite quote unquote smart speaker. And I'm just talking from a speaker perspective. I loved it. I was disappointed when it went away. And I was also sad that it went away because it had a fatal flaw that we've seen a lot of HomePods succumb to where there's some sort of power issue, which two of mine have had, where once it gets this issue, it can never be resurrected. And it seems like all HomePods, will, original HomePods will eventually have this happen because it's just some sort of decay 
on the on the internals. But either way, I was just counting the days down to when all my original HomePods would just no longer work. And then we would not have, you know, I'm not going to, you can't replace it with a HomePod mini. So seeing it come back was really exciting for me. John, do you use HomePods at all? I have a HomePod. I have the original here, but I use it pretty much only for HomeKit commands. I don't want to turn my lights on or off. I'm just, the audio stuff's not that important to me. I do in my head imagine there'd be a, a team of Apple audiophiles that every like 10 years are allowed to come out and make a product. And then they, then they, sort of put, them, they put them back in the basement until the next decade when Apple will make an audio product again. But when it comes to audio stuff, I pretty much just listen to Quinn. I've just, just started the HomeKit like thing in my house. So it's been real handy nice. to, to have. Especially that's a good time with like with Matter coming this year as well. You'll have much more options than you did in the past. HomePod, it's out now. I love it. I recommend it. Grab one if you like it. But only grab it if you're interested in the sound quality because the HomePod mini does every single other thing and just doesn't sound as good from an audio perspective. So if it's for smart home functionality that you're looking for, save yourself an extra 200 bucks. John, a topic that's near and dear to your heart right now. I and mean, we'll close out the show with this one. Talk to us about YouTube Shorts. I'm getting a lot of questions on it. And I've seen Renee out there doing a bunch of videos, kind of a, a press tour for YouTube Shorts now that monetization has been turned on. So I wanted to get a sense of what YouTube Shorts was going to be. And I feel like TikTok has done a horrible job at creator monetization. I think Instagram has just be like, here's some money, but no idea sort of what they're doing, you know, with their platform. If there's ever been a company that knows how to monetize and mobilize creators to YouTube. So I feel like Shorts is clearly in its infancy right now, but I want to sort of learn and understand it. And I didn't necessarily want to do it on my channel if it was a disaster. So we created a new show focused on space content called uh, Interstellar News. And it's all 59 second space stories. And it was very reminiscent of the early days of YouTube. It just, it blew up. I think it's been up for about five months. We have 180,000 subscribers. We've done 10.3 million views the past 28 days. It's crazy. But the, which sounds awesome. Yesterday, we did a million views. In the, in the day. In a day. I don't know if I've ever had a million views in a day on my channel. I'm not sure that's ever happened. And we had our highest revenue day ever on YouTube Shorts. Any guesses as to what the, the revenue was? $36. I'm not doing the math, but the CPMs I've been seeing on my Shorts is like two cents. So in all fairness, we're filming this on February 17th and monetization got turned on on the 1st. So we've had 16 days of monetization. They were very clear to talk about a ramp up. It's going to take time. We had our best day ever yesterday where we made $42 on a million views. <laughs> now, on one hand, it's, like, it's, on one hand, it's nice to see revenues coming in, but obviously there's a huge ramp up for what YouTube Shorts is going to be and what it's going to turn into. Hold on. Let's inform people just for the baseline. If you got a million views on your long form content, roughly what would you expect to earn? in AdSense revenue? Depending on the time of year, eight to $12,000 probably. So eight to 12K versus $50. I just wanted to put that out there. The steps are crazy with shorts, right? Who gets the money? It's not being played in the video. Is it the, is it the creator before? Is it the creator after? Is it the split? Are people gonna leave the platform to go buy a product like they do on YouTube? So the barriers are, are, are nuts there. But as YouTube is pushing shorts more and trying to get creators, I do want to try to have people come in at least right now with eyes wide open that the ramp up is not even out of the garage. And I think until, you know, maybe you're on the street, they're gonna have a hard time getting creators to commit to a platform. And right now, the absolute joke of a creator fund on TikTok is monetizing better than YouTube shorts. Really? Wow. So I still believe in YouTube shorts. 
we're still committing to YouTube shorts. And I think by the end of the year, we're going to see very drastic figures than what we see right now. But the message of everybody should be doing shorts if you're looking for monetization is definitely not there yet. Right. I think shorts is really more about growth, right? Like it is a good growth tool. So it's growth to what end though, right? So like, it's cool to sit here and be like, we did 10.3 million views the past 28 days and 108,000 subscribers. But like, what is that? You know, if you're looking at it as a creator, it's nice to be like, look what I've done. This is incredible. I've, I've built this thing. But if you're looking at it from a business standpoint, it, it almost hurts. You can go to, to brands. I have, all, I, I have all these views. My, my revenue is low. Well, you don't need to tell the brand that. You can just say, here's my views and let, let's do I mean, something. But, I mean, but <laughs> just in general, whether, whether it's a brand or you're looking for whatever it might be, it's a double-edged sword right now for shorts. And you're seeing the message of them sort of go on a very aggressive marketing campaign to get creators. I just wanted to share my experience. And again, I'm just one person, but it has not been tremendous. Um, like I think people are expecting it to be. Yeah. For me, I got on TikTok super early, the beginning of the, of the pandemic. And for me, like I always tell people, even with YouTube, like I always told people, I don't make YouTube videos. I make videos and YouTube is one platform where I publish them. So when I make vertical videos, I'm putting them on reels. I'm putting them on TikTok, And now that shorts is there, I'm going to, I'm going to, cause I've already made the video. So I'm, I might as well take the extra 10 seconds and add it to YouTube shorts as well. Right. I do think there is value in creating content for different platforms. So you can meet people on the platforms that they're at usually as opposed to, Hey, I'm going to go onto a different platform and ask you to leave this one and come check me out over here. So I'll just meet people where they're at. And so for me, that just makes it easy to be a part of shorts because I already make the vertical video anyway. Whether they pay me or not, the video's already been made, so I might as well put it there. But are you editing it down? I mean, YouTube shorts limited at 59 seconds. TikTok, you can go much longer. Yeah, I, I make them all under 60 seconds so that they're compatible across the board. I'm not going to make a three-minute TikTok video ever. That just sounds painful. But so you said you haven't started on your main channel. Do you plan to? We're still going to start doing it. So we're still going to do it on my channel. We're going to do it on the Apple circle. And I do, I do think it's building a foundation for something. So I, I don't want to necessarily discourage anybody, but if you're thinking you're going to come become rich in the next six months with YouTube shorts, just at least go into it with, with sort of yeah more wide open eyes. Thank you for joining us this week. Always a play. Always a pleasure. And that is it for this edition of Geared Up. Thank you so much for listening. Of course, you can catch John and I on YouTube. I'm at youtube.com slash gear live and John is at youtube.com slash John for Lakers. Feel free to head over and subscribe to our channels to stay up to date on all the latest tech. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to Geared Up in your favorite podcast app. If you haven't done so already, just search Geared Up. That's two words, not one in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or really wherever you choose to listen. If you like what we do, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the show. Geared Up is a Gear Live podcast, and you can see more from us at GearLive.com. Thank you so much for listening. For John Rettinger, I'm Andrew Edwards, and we'll catch you in the next episode.